Most businesses aren't just accessible from one country anymore, and neither is marketing, of course. The internet is global, after all. So I think it's time that you and I take a trip together. Pack your bags. We're about to head overseas. And we're flying business. Hi, I'm Sarah Spence. I grew a content agency from just me to 20 people inside two years. So you'd think I'd have my shit together. And even though I try to come at everything with a rebellious curiosity, I've been so focused on growing this thing that I'm a bit behind in the trends. Join me on this journey to find out what's actually happening in the world of marketing. Welcome to The Content Rebels. The world is getting smaller. We can fly to Europe or America in a day. We can order something online and get it from anywhere in the world in a week or even sometimes just a few hours. And if you're creating anything digital, of course, it has the potential to reach right across the globe, even if you don't intend it to. And so marketing campaigns that once spoke to a particular demographic in a particular place, well, that place is sort of nowhere and everywhere now. So how can we do it well, especially when there are different cultures and languages to think about? Sasha Menon is the head of content marketing APAC with Autodesk, a multinational software corporation. Thank you so much for giving me the, the opportunity to be on Content Rebels. I love what you guys are doing. She's also worked with brands like Nestle, Johnson's & Johnson's, Guinness and Mini Cooper. <gasps> Sasha's great love is to market international brands and their thought leadership through content. And she's about to share with you some of her experiences working on campaigns that differ in some utterly unexpected ways, depending on the country and the culture that they're targeting. So fasten your seatbelts and return your tray table to the upright position. It's time to head to Malaysia, where Sasha started her marketing career. I started my career in what was then known as customer relationship marketing, also known as below the line marketing. We were the ugly stepsister, we were the like cool kids who made uh, really cool TV scenes and print ads. Uh, our role was sort of middle to end of the marketing funnel. Um, we, you know, once people had bought the product, um, they gave us their information and uh, our role was to build brand affinity and retention. And uh, we handle the databases for the clients like Nestle and Guinness and Heineken, uh, Mini Cooper, BMW, all those guys. Um, and so we communicated with them regularly um, and handling the database may, meant that we, we had all those demographics at our fingertips, which was beautiful for us because it meant that we you know, really knew our customers really well so we could really target our messaging. And then when this newfangled thing called digital marketing came on scene, and yes, that's that's how old I am. <laughs> um, naturally, it was given to us because, you know, it, it fit with what we were already doing. Um, so that was actually my start in marketing in all of the uh, Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so what sort of campaigns were you working on? What did that look like when you were in Malaysia? Some of the things that I worked on would be, you know, in a day, I could be selling one single product, but I would have to kind of change the content, change the cover letter that came in uh, direct mail packs, 
to talk, you know, for one minute, I'd be like, oh, you got to fit in a busy work schedule uh, and yoga in the afternoons. And then the next thing I'm talking about homework and quick one meal recipes uh, for toddlers. And, you know, the next thing I'm talking about diabetes and, <laughs> you know, uh, aches and pains. And, and I could do all that in one day in just four sheets of paper, for example, you know. So it was really interesting. And, um, but one of my absolute favorite campaigns that I've ever worked on um, was something that we called the Guinness Older Drinkers campaign. Um, I know, I know, I know you laugh, but... Um, <laughs> The reason I say this was because we had, uh, in, in Malaysia, Guinness was primarily uh, enjoyed by a certain demographic of men, much older, really rough truckers, construction workers, tradie types. And they had zero concept that Guinness was not a Malaysian drink. Really? The brand had been in Malaysia for over 100 years, and we communicated to them in Mandarin. I don't speak Mandarin. I don't write. I certainly don't write Mandarin, but I was so fortunate to be one of the writers on the project. Wow. Um, and so because of that cultural nuance, uh, everything we did was very Chinese skewed. And uh, we talked about the emperor and his men, and we talked about the Guinness men being different from the others. And it was very macho male um, you know, but rooted in Chinese culture. And it was just amazing uh, in the sense that how such an international brand can be so localized. And so, I mean, to me, there are there are a good few examples around the world of brands that really em embody and embrace their origin country. You know, you really would very much see them. You know, there's obviously like international brands like Apple, you know, is international. It's not like inherently American. Um, but Guinness is inherently Irish. <laughs> like you I I'm I'm amazed that they went so far away from that to localize it there. It's been in Malaysia for over a hundred years. Wow. Okay. So they had no idea. And we have a we Malaysia has its own uh, I think it's one of I think the only other out of Ireland facility that makes its own Guinness is in Africa and Malaysia makes, um, so it's only Malaysia and Africa that makes its own Guinness. Everything else comes from Ireland. So there are only three breweries in the world. Wow. Okay. And now I'm guessing that campaign was really effective. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Okay. So across the world, the main theme about uh, the main brand image or the main brand message is that the Guinness man is bold. Mm -hmm. You know, because the drink is a very bold drink. So how you translate that in different countries, that was up to us. We were allowed that amount of personalization as long as we went back to the main brand message, which was the Guinness man is bold. He is, you know, he stands apart. He has his own sort of, uh, he, he's not so much, a, he's not a follower, he's a leader. So with the, you know, with Chinese culture, we managed to do that with the older drinkers. When it came to the younger drinkers, we started talking about the Guinness and, you know, we did that origin story and we painted him as this really strong, bold man who got, you know, managed to sign a thousand year lease for um, water or, you know, 
spent a while. I don't know why he's <laughs> my Guinness history that well, but you know, something to that effect. So yeah. So you really, for the younger generation, you had to actually bring it back to the international aspect, a bit more being the Irish aspect in order to gain traction. Yes. So we had to actually stop having it look like an older drinker, um, rough, um, you know, trading drink. And we started talking taste. We started talking food pairings. We had something called um, black parties where we had, you know, you come to, oh my God, it sounds so wrong now when I say it. We had, you know, special invite only, um, you know, we, I think we had the Black Eyed Peas at one point coming I mean, concerts and things like that. So um, very hip and invite only kind of events in uh, clubs and stuff like that. And this is all evident, of course, of how much insight you've got into how marketing works in international spaces. What is it that you need to think about when working in that international market that you don't necessarily have to think about with campaigns that may be directed to a particular national or local market? I think there are actually quite a few things to consider when you're working on something for an international audience versus a local one. Um, I think many times multinationals try a one-size-fits-all uh, campaign and you know choose instead to localize rather than personalize and there's a huge difference between the two, as we just spoke about it. Uh, one is just translating. The other one is actually knowing your customer and changing, um, you know, things to fit the culture and the context. So I think, you know, and as we spoke just now, you know, it's it's very, it, it, it can be done. We see McDonald's doing it every day. It's Macca's here. You've got your, um, I'm loving it throughout. That's the brand essence, but how they do it in different countries is different. And so, you know, it can be done. Um, and so to me, if you want any sort of actual impact, um, I think the first thing that you need to do is make sure you actually listen to the marketers or the sales teams who are from the different regions or the different countries that you're marketing to. Um, of course, if you have access to them, the customers, absolutely. And then, you know, always leave room for personalization, um, I'm sorry, uh, you also have to, you know, ensure you have like a, a strong messaging strategy framework that answers that business need and the customer insights from these countries. And then, of course, leave some room for personalization by the various countries. And it's not easy. No. It is not easy. Um, it takes, a, you know, a balance of having too many cooks versus not enough cooks versus being too rigid in saying who has a say in it and who doesn't have a say in it. it it's not easy but you know over time you will learn uh how to collaborate and how to you know get the right people in the room and pull the right sort of information um but once it's done that that's the kind of international campaign that becomes really impactful because it will work yeah that's so true and i think you you know gave a great example with the with guinness as being in effect, there was a, a singular brand essence that then could you had the room and the creativity and the scope and also the trust from the global brand global brand team to be able to execute, which was being bold. Yeah, <laughs> they were bold themselves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because it is. I mean, I've worked for for many international brands as well when I was in um, in in house roles, and 
yeah, the most that we ever really got to be able to do was in effect translate exactly as you say. We we were able to translate the global comms for an Australian audience. And sometimes that was as basic as changing the Zs to the Ss in the copy. Yes. Um, there was very little room to be able to fully localize it. But I also think that's because the you're absolutely spot on that strong messaging strategy wasn't necessarily there at, at that global level. Yes, I think I think that's that's very true. You also need um, mm. local expertise um, on the other end to be able to say this. Can I take this and tweak it in this way so that it fits us a little bit better? Mm. And yeah, you need collaboration. You need people to agree to that sort of thing. And sometimes it's hard. Yeah, because it is probably it probably looks more cost-effective and controllable as a global brand to just say, okay, here's what we want to say. Now go out and, as you say, translate it, do that first level of localization. Because, you know, if you allow everybody to completely personalize, if, if a brand hasn't done that before, then it's going to, it's, it's a, a fair amount of control to have to pass over. Um, and you probably also can be a bit unsure about how that's going to turn out budget-wise too. You could personalize via region. You don't have to personalize via, you know, country. Some countries like Southeast Asia, for example, you know, you could personalize via um, region and then translate it if you have the, the budget. There are many ways to do it. Um, obviously, it does take a, a bit more in terms of budget. But it's also, you know, what it, what are you expecting to get out of this? And, you know, how much are you willing to put into it? And uh, from yeah. my experience, it's when we personalize that we have actually seen a very good um, result. Let's stop for a moment and look a little closer at personalizing a campaign. Why is personalization so important for international brands and why do they struggle with handing over that control? The answer for both of those questions is probably money. But the lost opportunity cost of a brand maintaining control, to that extent, it can be massive. But then again, trying to quantify like in advance what could be if you actually personalize the campaign, well, that's really hard too. It's a really interesting way to think about international brands and how they could personalize. And what better place to look at that than across Asia? But of course, Sasha isn't in Asia anymore. She works closely with a lot of the Asian countries because her role covers APAC, but she actually now lives in Cairns. And that's not the biggest shift. She also went from B to C to B to B. And when she moved here, I wondered how much of a culture shock it all really was. Um, I think I dove head in the way I always do. And I went in the same way I was trained to do right from the start. Who's my customer? Who am I talking to? Why should they care? And then, of course, I was really, um, no one told me this. <laughs> uh, I was really shocked to find out that I wasn't talking to a single individual. I was actually talking to a buying committee. Um, and, you know, it could, I've seen the personas. To, for one campaign and it could be up to 16 different 
personas that you're talking to from panel meters, uh, panel builders, sorry, to um, sustainability, um, head of sustainability to this, you know, entire C-suite, uh, including the CFO and all this, because the deals are millions of dollars worth. And sometimes the, the deals can take um, some time to, to uh, make versus, you know, selling a prepaid phone card or a, an ice cream or a pair of jeans. And I you're speaking to one person here, you're speaking to so many different people. Um, so yeah, I can create content for a whole bunch of people. And I think the biggest difference is the amount of research that's required. It's the amount of research that we have, that we have to understand, that we have to, you know, I, I, I don't have an engineering background, but I'm writing to C-suite um, or an end user about our products to kind of explain to them how it works. So being, and I think in this sense, also my training comes in as a copywriter was very good um, in the sense that, you know, as copywriters, and you might agree with me on this as well, Sarah, when we move from brand to brand, you kind of have to do that research. You have to do that, you know, you kind of shift your mindset. You could be writing like I said, you know, about adult diapers from one minute and then to be writing about Mini Coopers the next. So you kind of have to be able to sh shift and you have to do the research required. So it, that wasn't too hard for me, um, learning and understanding. And I, I think I took a lot of that experience as a copywriter where I just went up to sales guys and said, can I join you in your client meetings? Um, because that's what we learn, you know, as writers, right? That's what we do. We go speak to the customer, we go on ground and all that. So I think some people found my way of uh, a, a bit weird, <laughs> um, you know, just shadowing sales and things like that. I don't think anyone else in the team was doing things like that, but I found it very helpful. And um, yeah, so that that's that's what happened. And I've always maintained that. And I start my day reading newspapers from three different countries because what's happening on a global scale will change how um, these buying committees buy. Yes, so true. And I love what you said there around that your, I guess your training as a writer, um, as a copywriter really has impacted how you learn because I feel that way too. And that what you're referring to there about that kind of code switching, it's like we we have to as quickly as possible get our head around a new topic or a new client and then we have to be able to code switch to the next one with as little friction as possible because otherwise as a as a content creator and a copywriter you can't be effective if it takes you if it takes you a whole day to kind of unravel from thinking constantly about adult diapers to instead thinking about you know a piece of construction tech um, then you're not gonna, you're not going to be able to make much money uh, so it's definitely a discipline and a practice. Yeah, yeah. How did you do it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think my brain has always been able to see patterns that weren't as obvious to others potentially. So I, I find it quite easy to like sit in a sales call or to you know read through a. a bunch of documentation and kind of knit together. Oh, okay. Now I get it. I can kind of see how this all comes together. I find that quite easy to do on the fly. Um, but also I have ADHD. And so code switching is like 
is like my drug. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I can't stay focused on any one thing for too long unless I end up hyper-focusing, in which case I am, I think of nothing else for hours. Um, But mostly I actually find it really satisfying to code switch because it's really easy for me because it's as soon as something in my brain starts to get a little bit boring, it's like, okay, cool, I'll go on to something else. That's a, that's like a superpower. Nice. <laughs> I, I just used to use music. I think most good writers do have a superpower in their back pocket, one that helps them switch from client to client or campaign to campaign. Music's such a great way to do that, of course. And actually, when I do strategies, I know this sounds weird, but I tend to listen to one album on repeat for however long it takes me to do that strategy. I have to say, though, I sometimes listen to some pretty hectic music when I work, mainly show tunes. (laughs) Like last year, I was doing a massive strategy. It was over 70 hours in the end. And I listened to the soundtrack of this Pixar animated film called Vivo. You've probably not heard of it, but it's awesome. And there's about nine songs in the film that have words and are written and scored by the incredible Lin-Manuel Miranda. I would marry that man if I could. And I was listening to those nine songs over and over and over again for the full 70 hours. It was literally all I could listen to in order to keep myself focused. I know lots of people can't listen to anything when they work, but hey, it's what works for my brain. Anyway, I digress as usual. So we know about Sasha's extensive international career, and we now know about the way she approaches these campaigns for big brands across multiple countries. It's fascinating. But another thing that Sasha has extensive insight into is thought leadership and using content to create that thought leadership. It is one of those terms, though, isn't it, that's bandied about, not always truly understood. So I asked Sasha to tell me about her take on thought leadership and why she sees it as a real place of growth for brands. I think if if branding is... Um, making sure everyone knows your name um, and what you stand for, then thought leadership is that voice, becoming that voice in the market, um, you know, ensuring that you're a trusted voice in the market. Is, to me, it is very much stepping away from just, you know, screaming product at people. And, um, and it's, that is so important in a B2B space. Um, and it's actually, again, taking customer first approach. So it's it's going back and saying, what's keeping my customer awake at night? And then using that insight to assure them that you have the expertise and the solutions to solve their problems. Um, so to me, product, when it comes to thought leadership, product isn't first. And, you know, when I say that, I, I, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. I actually don't say that to the sales team. I don't say product is not thought leadership. Um, what we do is what, or what I try to do is I try to kind of take them through a content funnel and explain to them at first, I'm going to talk about what they're concerned with. And then as we go through the funnel, we will get to the point where we start introducing the solution that the product is going to offer them you know so so it's talking to them from sort of a higher level rather than just 
throwing product at them. It is knowing who is concerned with what and who holds the purse strings. Remember the buying committee is important in the, um, the B2B space, but it's also understanding who is the one that ultimately is going to sign off on a million to $2 million worth of tech solutions and understanding what keeps that guy awake at night. So that's why thought leadership in the B2B space is very important. And um, it's not very easy for marketing to convince um, the other departments that it's, you know, we're not going to talk product first. Yeah. So it takes a certain level of being able to show ROI, um, being able to prove to them and, you know, being able to get a, a bit of a, a good amount, a hefty dose of trust from the rest of your team outside of the marketing space to actually allow you to do it. Uh, but when you do it and if you do it right, it is fantastic for you. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it, as you say, it's, it's like valuable education Yes, and, and then sale, as opposed to sales with the promise of education once you've purchased. Absolutely, and yeah, some people don't even offer you the the promise of education after purchasing. It's true. <laughs> it's just buy our stuff. Yes, yes. Like, how easy do you find it to prove it is to prove ROI, especially when a lot in the content space it does have that longer term, you know, that longer term impact, but. How do you convince the sales team or your bosses, for instance, that something is worth investing in if you can't immediately be proving ROI? I think this goes back to, um, I've noticed that some content practitioners believe that um, content works to build an audience. I believe, and this could be because my, my training is as a writer in the digital space, I believe that content works with the demand generation team. So I create the content, but I work with them for their campaigns and what they are going to do. So I'm not off playing content on my own. I am in the sandbox with them. So if they can prove ROI, that means the content that I have created is working for them. So I'm not off doing thought leadership on my own and campaign demand generation is doing their own thing. I think that's just, yeah, that's just silly. <laughs> no one can be proving anything at the end of the day if they don't. And I've actually seen teams, marketing teams doing that. Um, and that's really not, you know, cause, cause content, some, I've seen teams where content is just focused on building an audience, building an audience and they don't move past that part of the funnel and when i became a content creator i couldn't understand that mm. and so i think um if you are looking to build roi it is very much rooted in collaborating with your demand generation team and then also your field marketing team because content doesn't live on its own it doesn't exist in a vacuum it's part of a larger marketing strategy Absolutely. And it is, I mean, I've had so many great conversations on this podcast about exactly that, like what role does content marketing play as opposed to, um, you know, individual other strategies? Because I think a lot of the people we've spoken to on this podcast are experts at what they do as one slice of marketing, but we are all seeing very much, I think, this, this huge transition to the fact that we're all 
realizing, hang on, just doing one part of it, if you aren't collaborating with or connecting with those other teams and those other strategies, you're not getting the best impact that you can otherwise have. Yeah. And I think that, again, my background was amazing for me because I did. I don't know how else to work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to, you know, to... We we were below the line and we had to work with the cool kids who make TV and print as well, you know. So it was, it's always, uh, you know, 360, we called it, you know. It was always a 360. Every idea had to be 360, so. Yeah, I love that. And I think as well, you know, for young people these days, they very much, you know, think want to come into marketing and do the sexy stuff, you know, make the TikToks and make the reels or, or whatever. And it's like actually starting at the, bottom and starting in the non-sexy stuff is actually the the best path to a really solid career because it's going to give you that strategic perspective that you won't have if you're just out there you know executing on someone else's strategy already you've got to be in the room part of the strategy from the beginning yeah I was very lucky in that sense right place right time mm. well no but you know I think as women we say that a lot this is probably segueing <laughs> too much but like I I heard a few weeks ago at an event I was at that it was that they wanted to try and stop women from saying saying the word lucky because none of us are actually lucky. We all worked hard. Oh hell yeah. In order to be where we are. It wasn't just right place at the right time. It's actually no, you put yourself in that place and you put yourself in those positions. And we are all we all downplay our achievements way too much. Sarah, I can assure you I don't I don't do that. I don't downplay my achievements. Good. I'm awesome. Yes, you are awesome. Exactly. We need more of that. We need more of that. Um, okay, we segued off into beautiful feminist spin there because that's just what we do. But anyway. I love that sentiment. I, I do agree with you as well. Yeah, so important. Um, okay, so what role does content play in that world of then thought leadership and B2B marketing? Again, um, I could be biased because I am you know, head of content, but to me, it's the biggest role, right? So I create the content. Um, and then again, you know, as I said before, we use the insights, um, to assure your customers that you have like the expertise and the solutions to solve their concerns. But, um, again, you need the, the entire machinery for it to be actually truly successful. Um, you've got to integrate with whatever the demand generation team is doing and the field marketers, um, and you've got to have buy-in from your pre-sales guys, which is something I do. So before I actually figure out something or, or I'm coming up with thought leadership, there's a lot of listening that is done from customers, um, to sales guys, to pre-sales, to strat, industry strategy, uh, field marketing. And, you know, I, I'm in a very privileged position because I speak to customers quite often. So. I care what I hear from a customer in India versus what I hear from a customer in Singapore versus a sales guy in Japan. All that is used to inform what I'm going to say. And then I obviously will work with my partner who's in demand generation. So previously I would have worked with an art director. These days I consider the head of demand gen my closest partner. Uh, we work together, we figure it out. And then, you know, only then do we come up with something and yeah, you, you kind of end up with something that you have to ensure 
he answers the entire customer journey and that's where you know it, do, it moves outside of digital and goes even into activation it goes into events and conferences so you're working with you what are you producing in terms of content for an event um you know for for a speaker who's going to be giving the keynote presentation what are you saying that it all has to track back from that thought leadership that you kind of used as a catalyst to get people to speak to you and you know it, it is complicated and i mean i get paid to do it so i don't think i can encapsulate it completely in this but i i hope i've painted you a picture at least do you think that that brands i mean it sounds like autodesk definitely does but do you think other brands particularly the international space put as as high a value on listening as you know that it is needed i think your international brands do a lot of listening uh and again i've been you know in a, in the right companies that worked on international brands um so i think international brands do a lot of listening because um it's part of their dna especially and listening is especially important to me to see i feel only now is it important to be to be only now is this customer first approach i believe i could be wrong but i think only now is this customer first approach truly being embraced by the b2b uh, industry but i think listening has always been something that the b2c industry has done and there's so much that we can learn from the b2b industry in, in that sense um so final question this is one we're asking everyone uh of course chat gpt do you see it as being a friend a foe or a flash in the pan i think it's a bit of a frenemy ah good answer <laughs> um i think and i think you will agree with me sarah one of the scariest things is a blank page a blank word document as a writer it's like a world of possibility but you have no idea sometimes where to start and that writer's blog, especially when you're moving from brand to brand and you're talking from, you know, one topic to another, I think I have very recently succumbed to ChatGPT, you know, just to kind of give you like inspiration about how do I start a position? I have not been able to use it yet. A lot of times it's absolute rubbish. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm very excited to see where it's going to go. I don't think us as writers are going to have to worry about it too much. Um, but yeah, frenemy, definitely. At least, you know, something to spark where to start when you're, especially for somebody like me who's, you know, when I have to write something about construction and cost, um, in, it, it, it's, it's helpful. AI sure can be helpful in the right circumstances, but I love that Sasha called it a frenemy. Most people we've talked to, they say it's a friend, but I do think, of course, there's still stuff we need to be wary of around AI, and that frenemy term captures that perfectly. I mean, we've also got to consider that age-old saying, right, like, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. So we're going to keep moving forward on all of this, of course, but we're going to tread carefully too, right? And like all of her marketing work, I sense that Sasha comes at these things with a lot of thought and care too. It's been a wild trip across the Australasian region this episode, a space that is as varied as the people who live in it. 
And if you're marketing to that many different cultures, it's the understanding and care of a senior content marketer like Sasha that will really see those international campaigns hit home. Thanks for joining me on this journey. If you want to stay rebellious in how you practice marketing, how you show up in your workplace and how you live your life, please subscribe to The Content Rebels wherever you listen to your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on a Awabakal and Darkenjund country. Produced by Pod and Pen Productions.